Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to talk about an ebook I just put out. It is on Gumroad, or I mean, you can go to any of my social media platforms, and there, there, it's in the links as well. But I essentially packed all the information I've gathered over the past year and a half to two years and put it in an ebook on how to start a podcast, how to grow it, how to monetize it, how to reach out to guests, everything, how to market it, everything you need to know, A to Z about starting a podcast. It's in there. It is very affordable. So please go check it out if that's something you're interested in. It's a great networking tool that I've used over the past year and a half. It's I've, I've gotten to meet some amazing people and it's a growing trend. There are a lot of people that are starting podcasts, but I don't think they're really thinking it through. And this is just a great way to, to do that. So feel free to check it out. I'll leave it in the show notes and you can go to any of my social media handles and you can go on Linktree there and you'll see the ebook. Feel free to check it out. So let me introduce this week's guest, Inbal Ariely. Inbal is a serial entrepreneur, tech influencer, author, and speaker. Her latest book is Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation in Entrepreneurship. And I had so much fun doing this uh, podcast. As soon as I spoke to Inbal, I think within five minutes, I already felt like I, I knew her for a very long time. I just felt very comfortable talking to her. So I think that lent itself to a really fun podcast with uh, a lot of information. We packed that information in there. She's a wealth of knowledge on tech in general, but specifically in Israel as well. Now, as the book title suggests, I've been wanting to have someone on the podcast for a while that is an authority on why Israel is such a, a hub of innovation, why it's such a success story when it comes to tech, when it comes to startups and, and allowing entrepreneurs to be as creative as possible or as daring as possible. And for whatever reason, or for all those reasons that we talk about in the podcast and that she mentions in the book, Israel is one of those countries. And it's just, it's, it's a great case study. It's a great, insightful book. It's a great podcast because she mentions a lot of those things. And we kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on why or what goes through the average Israeli person's life and why that lends itself to being a great entrepreneur. Like what are the events that happen? What is the culture? What is the mindset? And I, I think it's fascinating. It's stuff that I kind of grew up on, I guess, but just I never realized what it was when I was going through it. And now in hindsight, I can actually see the benefits and the advantages. So fascinating stuff. You guys are going to love it. Strap in, enjoy the podcast, and let me introduce this week's guest in Balarieli. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Inbal, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad, not too bad. Enjoying another gloomy day in the Connecticut uh, weather, which it used to be nice in the summer, but now it just sucks year round. It's uh, <laughs> New England has bad weather now. It's just all year round bad weather. So that's why we're moving out to Denver. But yeah, it is what it is. Well, I just spend my morning, uh, since it's a holiday in Israel here, um, I just spend my morning at the beach. Beautiful weather. Perfect weather here. 
Yeah. For those who may not know, it's pretty much summer 10 months out of the year. And then you have maybe about two cold months, cold-ish months in uh, in Israel. But other than that, it's, it's pretty much perfect uh, beach weather almost year round. Totally. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a great morning. Um, I was, you know, I recently discovered you as we spoke a little bit before the, the, the recording of the podcast on my way. I was in Israel uh, visiting family and in the airport, Ben Gurion Airport, I walked through the bookstore, which I always do it because you can always find a few gems. And I see your book just sitting there. And I was like, oh, chutzpah, all right. It's, it's an eye catcher. Like straight away, you know, you go, I, I, my eye was just drawn to the book. And chutzpah, why Israel is a hub of innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, recently wrote it. And uh, yeah, maybe tell people a little bit more about it. First of all, I mean, I guess it's unrelated to you, but you got amazing real estate. It's some place where every passenger can just walk on by and see it. But B, maybe give the people a little bit more explanation of what the book is about and where the inspiration to write the book came from. Sure. So the, the fact that I have real great real estate um, at the airport bookstore, which by the way has the highest um, revenue um, in bookstores of stores in Israel because of the traffic of course yes. of people, is is because the the book is is doing really well there. So, uh, um, you know, if it's working, uh, they just keep selling it at a very uh, clear pace, which is great location. Yeah. Um, about the book and why I wrote it um, and what brought me to write it, I actually, truth is, to be honest, never had a dream of writing a book or thought, you know, that I would publish a book. Okay, I'm a, I'm a tech entrepreneur. I originally started my career as a, as, a le- as a lawyer, as a legal advisor and counsel to tech companies in Israel. Um, and then after a decade, um, started doing some investment myself and, and starting companies of my own, but never have I imagined that I would write a book. But here's the thing. Um, as the Israeli tech ecosystem, you know, kept growing and growing and gaining its um, very rightfully uh, position and reputation in the world as a, as really a, a very successful hub of entrepreneurship and innovation, which it is. Um, and, and me being a speaker on a variety of stages and conferences around the globe, I've always been asked that question of, you know, what, how come? Like, what's so special about Israel? How did this tiny country... Um, constantly busy with so many, you know, um, geopolitical, military challenges. I mean, you name it, right? Um, how has it been capable of, of creating in a relatively short time frame such a successful, um, so successful results in innovation and technology? Yeah. And... The answer that I was expected to give, because that was the answer that you know, people were used to hear, was the military. Yep. Being a differentiator, being um, just like in the US, by the way, Silicon Valley started uh, by former military technologies and people who came out of military organizations and, and, and brought that knowledge and know-how into the, the um, non-military space. 
same happened in Israel, and it used to be given as the the main reason, as the catalyst. Mm-hmm. Now, I myself am a former officer in the Israeli military, um, in one of the top elite units um, that produces actually many of the tech entrepreneurs. And so I I understand and relate to that conclusion. However, and that's where our story actually starts. I don't think it starts in the military and I don't think the military is the catalyst. I think that the Israeli military is a great stage for other um, elements that are cultivated here and fostered from a much younger age. And when brought into the the environment of the military, surprisingly enough, they're given they're given stage. They're given like uh, a room to evolve. Mm-hmm. The toolbox is something that we bring into the military. And so um, I was on stage in Napa Valley. Um, it was November, I think, or October, actually. Yeah. So actually, 2013, okay. I was on stage, asked that question, and that time I decided I'm going to give a completely different answer. And I said, I actually think that it's, it, all, it all starts at the playground. And it was a tech conference, and like, what? Yeah. Right? What's yeah. the I was a playground related to tech innovation. And so I just shared my thesis that I had at that time. Coming off stage, people started asking me where could they read more about what I said. And I was like, nowhere. It's just an opinion that I have. Yeah. And like I said before, I, I didn't do writing or you know, I did not release my thoughts out there. And going back to the hotel that night, it was already morning in Israel. I called my my husband, who's my my partner to any you know idea that I have. Um, and I told him, you know what? I'm gonna start writing a book. I have this thesis that people are interested in because mm-hmm. not one person asked me, but like a long list of people came and wanted to hear more. And that's when I decided to write the book. It took me um, six years, actually, between that decision and the moment it was published in the U.S. by HarperCollins as a business book. So it's Harper Business, actually, um, because the, the, the second I decided that I'm doing it, I also decided that I'm going to do it to a global audience, starting with my, uh, you know, my, my colleagues and, and audience in the U.S. Yeah. And, and best and highest standards possible. And so, uh, end of the story, um, you saw the book. It is <laughs> English version of it. Yeah. Um, so it's very similar to, to startups, right? They, uh, Israeli startups, they have ideas, but their market is the U.S. always. They never, or very rarely do they create products for the Israeli market. They create their, they have their ideas, they make them, and then, ship them to the U.S. It's very similar to what you did, right? Because that is the, the market, essentially. Right. And, and that is because I come from the tech ecosystem. Yeah, from the- exactly. So, because otherwise, if you look at the, you know, if you look at content creation today in Israel, which has really well-developed um, and other authors, 
they typically first write to their local domestic audience um, and then try to sell the rights globally, um, which is a completely different story because when you write a book and you need to have just like a, a product, a specific target audience in mind, because you could tell the same story in so many different ways to different audiences. Mm-hmm. And yes, my, I think that my decision to write in English to target the U.S. market, um, the business market, the U.S. market as my main market is definitely rooted in my experience in the startup world. Yeah. Well, essentially what, what I gather both from you and, and the book is it's not only the army or it's not only the wars that Israel has had or the type of thinking or the playground. It's it's an amalgamation of everything that is Israel from the food to the expressions and, and everything, which creates this extremely innovative atmosphere for young adults to thrive in. And it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like they have they have we have our whole childhood to kind of live uh, through all those experiences. And the IDF is almost like the Y Combinator of Israel. <laughs> like you get into Y Combinator and then that you get the results of, you know, a Fiverr or all these other big companies out there through those things. Yeah. So I actually think of it as, um, you know, as a mindset. Okay. This chutzpah, what is chutzpah? What is this? right? This thing for me, it's, it's, it's a mindset that actually comprises of a variety of a collection of traits, elements, capabilities, choose the word you want. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I think they are very present in the way we grow up in Israel, but I actually think that they are universal in a sense. And so if you think of it, the book was published by Harper Business. It's a business book, but it speaks about childhood. And the reason is it was was an intentional um, decision I made because the one common thing that we all have around the globe, everyone has, is the fact that we once were kids, Mm -hmm. all of us, right? And when you think... Think of it and you, and you go back into your childhood, no matter where you grew up and no matter what your culture is and the influence of the environment, there are some very basic universal elements that all kids possess. Mm-hmm. My thesis is that in Israel, we, we let them thrive, these elements. And whereas in other places, some of them are more strengthened and cultivated and nurtured while others are less. Uh, of course, on the account of other things, right? Yeah. There's all some sort of balance here. Um, but I do think that anyone around this globe possessed them and intentionally with awareness and training could go back into them, the, the, their own self and find them and create that chutzpah mindset yeah critical for for our future i w- you know i was fascinated with why you focused on words like rosh gadol balagan yep said obviously chutzpah and, and kombina and, and all these other words that are very obviously unique to israel 
But I was just wondering why you focused on on words to describe, you know, because a whole chapter could be based on on the word, right? And I found that fascinating. So uh, in the process of writing, mm-hmm. okay, I realized that um, there are three, if you want, um, lenses, three main lenses to, which I wrote through. One was the, the lens of the personality trait, the capability, okay? So let's say the skill, the soft skill. Let's say challenging authority, okay? Or just questioning as as a skill, okay? That's one lens. The second lens was how how is it manifested in Israel? Either childhood or in the tech ecosystem because the book also has, um, throughout the book, a lot of interviews with Israeli successful um, entrepreneurs that that go back and you know share their their personal stories. So that's the second lens: innovation, technology, entrepreneurship, um, and um, and the tech ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And the third lens, as I was writing, I realized that there are words in Hebrew that capture exactly what I'm trying to say that any Israeli would understand. Yeah. Um, and represent an entire mindset or micro mindset, um, some of which you, you just mentioned. And then together with the publisher, um, we decided to keep that dictionary part, which is very uncommon in you know, nonfiction books. Yeah. And sharing, exposing to the world this dictionary of words in Hebrew and, and their, how they originated, what they symbolize, um, and, and actually turning these words into concepts. No, I loved it. I, uh, I so, so often I have a hard time explaining. It's one of those things that's like, you know, kombina. You actually, I, that was the best translation I've ever heard of kombina, because I've been trying to tell people what that word means for about eight years. And every time I have a different way to describe it, and I never, ever describe it to what I think is a satisfactory level or to a point where I think they actually fully get it. It's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's just not on that same. And you, when you described it, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember when I read it, I was like, that is perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah, so uh, it took a lot of effort to try and, you know, take these concepts yeah. and articulate them in a way that captures exactly what they mean and not just the literal um, meaning of them. Although it's also very interesting to understand each and every word, what's its origin and how it has evolved mm-hmm. and how it's... Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, for sure. How many and languages... It, Sorry, go ahead. And, and the whole dictionary um, thing, by the way, became... It's interesting you're mentioning it because um, the first critiques of the book, the first reviews of the book in the U.S., all captured the the story of the book through the words. Yeah. Um, I, I did not think, I did not plan on the dictionary to be such a you know meaningful part of the book. I'm very happy it became such a meaningful part. Actually, you can see behind me um, some of the oh, words. Yeah. Uh, but in small, and they each have um, a visualized 
okay, mm-hmm. a way of describing them. They're all, by the way, um, available, free to download on my website, chutzpahcenter.com. There's a chutzpah dictionary. <laughs> you can download the visual, uh, um, you know, uh, well, yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah, you guys can't see, but there's a bunch of words right in the back. Uh, Yala, Katanalai, which, you know, if you read the book, they it, it kind of explains everything. But that's awesome. Yeah, you should check out the website. Definitely. Um, how many languages has the book been uh, translated to? So far, um, it was released first in English, then in Israel. Um, okay. Second language. I wrote it in English. Okay. Um, actually, in Israel, it's at, it's coming out soon in a second edition already. Nice. Yes, we're adding. Uh, we added. I wrote a new introduction in the Hebrew ver- uh, in in Hebrew, not in English. Yeah. Um, added um, an introduction about the uh, whole COVID pandemic and Israel's reaction to it. Okay. And then it was translated in four additional languages in Southeast Asia. So we have. Start with the smaller ones. They're not small, but they're smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, it was released already in Taiwan. Oh wow! It was released in South Korea. Okay. Of course, in local languages in Korean, um, yeah. in complex Chinese, which is the language spoken and read in Taiwan. It was released in Japan, in Japanese, okay. and recently in China, in Chinese. Um, there's. How, how how the reception been so far? Because I I think, and I mean I, I I'm probably wrong, but I'm just interested in this. I think we as Israelis, and and maybe it's true for other cultures as well. We think we're very unique, right? Like it's oh we uh, we're we're unique with this and with our food and the way we interact and all these things. And maybe every culture you go to in every country they think that, and they, they very well could be that that could be right, but. Have people from Japan or or China or Taiwan read the book and said, you know what? Like, I see a lot of what you describe in your culture, in our culture. I actually see more similarities than differences. So it's it, it is fascinating, and it's very also moving for me. You know, to get these reactions from readers in these countries, and yes, they each have a different perspective and they and they each find parts of themselves mm-hmm. because like I said before um, I really tried to capture some universal elements um, that I do believe exist in all in, in everyone mm-hmm. but in some cultures in so, some environments work somehow you know um, neglected um, because of different reasons or at least not not cultivated and so they 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 find them and they find them in themselves with a different you know sometimes appearance or or uh behavior but the core element is there um and it's different from one country to the other and on the opposite side there are some elements that are really not uh, that are more of a challenge, that are more of a, you know uh, an aspiration. Yeah. Um, these these cultures and these societies, because they do all understand that uh, the skills that I'm talking about in the book 
are the fundamental skills for the future. These are all soft skills that no matter where you live, no matter what you do, this is what humanity or human beings mm-hmm. will need in the future. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're all aspiring to, uh, to strengthen these skills. No, it's amazing because we tend to think of people, I think especially far, far, far away, like in Asia, very different from us, right? Oh, we're, we're so different. But like you said, there, you know, and maybe there are societal norms within each country and sometimes even within each area uh, of, of a country that can be different. But overall, I think there are, like you said, there's universal truths that are the same everywhere you go. So it's, yeah, it's good that they could pick up on those things. And it's good that the book projects those and that people can relate to that. Yeah. I mean, the best example is, you know, when you think of kids at three years old, okay, on let's take that age as a reference, when they score two and a half, when they start speaking, okay, and they start organizing the world in their, in their minds. Mm-hmm. They do it by asking questions. No matter where they grow, no matter what's the environment around them, that's how they organize the world. And that ability, that very naive, right, ability of kids just to ask questions without ego, without expecting some sort of answer or another, um, is something that is common to kids all around the world. Yeah. Um, so that's just a small example. Uh, now, of course, as we grow, the environment has more and more influence on us. And so values that exist in, in specific countries versus others will influence that example, who we ask questions, how much do we ask, in what tone do we ask those questions? That's true. Do we keep asking questions. Yeah. I think also as adults, it's funny. I don't have kids personally, but I have a niece and a nephew. And I remember, like you said, they're very inquisitive. They ask a lot of questions, sometimes too many. And you sometimes realize, wow, like I actually don't know the answer. (laughs) Like you want to give them all the answers, but sometimes they make you kind of think for yourself. You're like, actually, I, I, you know, I'm giving you an answer, but when they dig deeper, oh, but why is that thing like that? Like, I actually don't know. I have to actually think about that. You know, it's funny. They make you think about mm. these things in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, that's that's actually a great point. And one of my favorite topics in the book and in general is our ability as adults to face, you know, the fact that we don't know everything and actually to, to feel very comfortable, to try to feel comfortable with it. Because in most cases, when a kid would ask an adult, you know, a question, um, let's say, and then and, and, and go, they would go d- deeper and deeper to that point where the adult doesn't know, uh, he or she would, would, would try to find the answer. Yeah. You not want to leave it as a, you know, an unclear situation, yeah. right? Although, what if we just told them, you know what, I, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I think that teaches children much stronger lesson than, than the fact that we know everything. Yeah. There's a lot of power actually not knowing. 
it, it opens much more opportunities than knowing. Um, and and it, there's there are a few chapters in the book that actually refer and relate to that notion of not knowing is actually okay. Yeah. Um, especially in entrepreneurship and in innovation, there's so much more you don't know versus what you know. And if you're you have a lot of confidence and you think you know everything, your ch- your chances of evolving and growing and developing and succeeding eventually are actually lower. So uh, yes, I think that's that's a a critical element. Um, and it also, you know, creates us to be connects us to being more humble, and we, we really don't have the answers to everything. Yeah, I think there's a direct cor- like uh, link between unknowing and and the ego in a way because we as humans were very uncomfortable not knowing, right? Like when 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 someone asks questions and and we and we don't know, or maybe they talk about something and we've never heard of that before, we kind of feel like, oh. Or, am I dumb? Like, don't I know the answer? Like, shouldn't I know this? Oh, everyone else knows this. I don't know. And there's this notion or, and maybe this, I don't know, like historically, who knows like how far this goes back, maybe like not knowing something could get you killed back when you were like, in, uh, you know, back in the day. So it was very important to know the lay of the land and knowing everything around you. But yeah, there is, I'm, I'm, this is something I'm personally working on to just be more comfortable with saying, yeah, no, I've, I've never heard of that. Or, or I actually don't know. I, I'll, I'll go look at, you know, I'll go find the answer later on. But right now I just, I just don't know. And I should be okay with that, you know? Yeah. 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 I sometimes run a, a kind of a short, a, a test with audiences where I speak to, you know, in front of them and, and I ask a question, which I invent. And okay. there's a I don't know the answer to, and there's no real answer to because it's an invented question. Okay. And I like, a, um, you know, a, a multiple choice answers and only the fifth. Well, yeah. Well, the fifth answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And the other four answers are all, they seem reasonable for different reasons, but they're not correct. Yeah. And I ask a question and I, you know, we vote and very rarely you have people in the audience voting for number five. And then I tell them, you know, but sometimes there is one or two like brave people um, that just raise their hands and say, I don't know. And, and that's and, very brave, by the way, very brave to do that in front of an audience. An audience, and especially if it's, you know, uh, uh, an organization that you work at, or if, you know, yeah, your boss has voted something else, or you're, I don't know. Your, your role model, and 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 I use that as an example, and then I tell them, guys, this is an invented question, and the answers are invented answers, and yeah. they're correct. And actually, no one in this audience knew the answer, and yet only one or two out of hundreds of people were brave enough to say, "I don't know." And uh, I think it, it it is connected to our mechanism of um, not feeling comfortable with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, how we deal with amb- ambiguity. And, and most people need control. And the lack of control, which is in uncertain times, creates a very uncomfortable situation for them. Yeah. We, we can just you know, look at the past year and a half and, and what we've seen in the world 
nobody really has the answers. And yet we, we keep trying to find and, and, and rely on snippets of information and data. And so we could have some sort of control of what's happening around us. Yep. Yeah. That's why the news is, is, you know, I think it's probably some of the best ratings they've ever had. And I know in Israel, it's just ridiculous how long it's like from 4 p.m. till 10 p.m. It's just news all the time. And it's just regurgitating the same talking points. But I understand it. it there's fear. And when there's and you're fearful and there's an unknown, you want to go to what's what you think is an authority to give you answers. And uh, yeah, I understand it. But unfortunately, I think the the media on both uh, ends of uh, on both places, both here and in, in Israel, they uh, taken they've taken advantage of it, in my opinion. But it's a whole other it's a whole other story. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day because there's I was trying to think of like unique things in Israel, and there's this. And I'm sure you've 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 probably experienced this when you're sitting with a group of people, and you're like, "Why isn't this thing that way?" Right? Like you'll just be like sitting at a restaurant, and you'll see a I don't know a, a, a salt uh, a salt shake pepper thing, whatever it is, and you're like, "Oh, why is it that way? And why aren't the holes maybe bigger or whatever it is?" And then immediately like, "Well, there's your startup. There's just this like instant thing where people are like." why is this thing the way it is? How can I make it better? And then people around you are just like, oh yeah, you should just go with that. Just go make it a startup. And I've, I ha- that's not something that happens here. And I just wonder if that's something you've picked up on as well in Israel, where it's just this like, yeah, oh, that's a good idea. Run with it straight away. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that um, I always say that Israeli entrepreneurs in tech and non-tech, but definitely in tech, that they are solution-oriented. Mm-hmm. Just give them a problem and it, it immediately motivates them to find a solution yeah. or improve or you know evolve or develop. There's this um, inner motivation of creation of creating things of being involved in the creation of something and um of influencing through that and of solving solving problems solving challenges solving issues solving things yeah okay um so overall it's it's a very positive force because it keeps you moving it keeps you evolving it keeps you in motion However, it also it also has its um, downfalls, and that is that too often Israeli startups and entrepreneurs would find an incredible creative solution to a problem that is not that interesting, yeah, or not that big, um, and so instead of focusing on the on the problem and the need. It's, it's always about the solution, how to solve it. Uh, one of the things that I always do with entrepreneurs that I work uh, with in, in all of my accelerators and, and in incubators um, and as an investor is to tell them, you know what, guys, it's totally fine to spend more time exploring the problem, the need, the issue you're trying to solve before you decide how you solve it. Yeah. 
let's better understand the problem because I know that once we really fine tune the problem, you have no you have no barriers at all at solving it. Mm-hmm. But let's first understand really what the problem is, um, and that I'm afraid is a step, is a stage that many Israeli entrepreneurs are just skipping. They're running immediately into the solution. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. I, for yeah. example, sure. for example, is it really a problem? Like just with a small example of yeah. the restaurant. Is it really a problem that I need to address? Like the 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 salt and pepper that they're not coming out from one device. Yeah. Oh, great! If they could together. Oh, I know how to do that. Oh, I will immediately do that. And, and for different reasons. Um, but, but yeah, uh, making sure that you focus your energy and time and resources and capabilities on the correct problems. Yeah, but is that a Israeli entrepreneur problem or just an entrepreneur problem in general, right? Because let's say for, I think the thing about Israel is like we said earlier, because the market is the US, the main market, it's always the US. Like there's entrepreneurs here in the US that don't read the market well and they'll come up with a product or a service and it just flops for whatever reason, right? Maybe it's a solution that no one really needed. Maybe the market's not big enough. Maybe the market's not ready you know, plethora of different reasons. But in Israel, you have to have, you have to not know your local market. You have to know the other big markets. You have to understand how people connect there, how people shop, what do they like? What don't they like? All the other things. It's much harder, right? Like, because you have to know a completely foreign market. True. Yeah. So I think, I think you're right, but I do. So definitely the challenge of understanding the problems since most of Israeli entrepreneurs are not focused on domestic problems, yeah. um, it is a bigger challenge. Yet, I when you when you take two similar startups or two, I would say parallel startups in the U.S. and in Israel that mm-hmm. are facing the same um, market or the same market need, I think their approach of thinking about how to address that need are different. Um, from my experience, again, of course, we're speaking in generalities here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, from my experience, the U.S. entrepreneur would first, you know, run some validation tests in the market um, and, and run more uh, um, market studies before coming up with the best solution. Whereas the Israelis would. First and foremost, imagine the solution. Yeah. Okay. They would imagine it. They will run some validation tests, but but they already have something in their mind. Yeah. And and it can it can it can be a burden when you're already trying to force a need or the reality to to answer the solution that you have rather than the opposite. So you're already at the end of the race since when you haven't run the whole marathon. You, you think you are. You you know how you'll be at the end of the race, but yeah. but yeah, there's an entire marathon you need to go through first. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, we're very, it's we're uh it's almost like a factory of ideas, and uh, you know it's it's great because it's it's amazing, and you know I'll have my little nephew like come up. Oh, I have this idea, and I have that. Like everyone's throwing out ideas all the time. 
But yeah, like 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 you said, not all ideas are meant to be something. It's just sometimes it's just a, just an idea. Right. But the beauty is actually because of those ties between the U.S. markets mm-hmm. and the Israel tech ecosystem. What happened, especially in the past, I would say five, seven years, is that as these ties um, are even deeper and stronger than before, um, the U.S. market is even more represented in Israel through you know, more than 350 multinationals that have offices in Israel, through many Israelis who have relocated to the U.S. and came back to Israel. And, and, and so the market, in a sense, or the distance to the market, yeah. to understanding the market, has shortened a lot. And then when you couple these, th- that understanding of the market or the presence of these multinationals or just the, 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 the crazy highway, super intense highway okay, that exists between the U.S. market and Israel, both sides bring their their forces and together it's 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 a force multiplier yeah what um companies so maybe because everyone knows israeli innovation and startups but for those who may not know what are some uh innovations and big name companies that have come out of israel in the last let's say two decades two decades okay two decades i mean roughly right so let's start with uh, some some more historical examples, um, like for example, the USB flash drive okay. of M Systems, which was back then um, the largest transaction. It was in twenty two uh, um, two thousand and seven, I believe, um, the largest transaction. An Israeli company being acquired for one point seven billion dollars. Okay, so that's one example. Um, we have Waze as another example, which everybody knows, right? If it's it's an Israeli uh, um, company, uh, Waze was actually sold to Google for one billion dollars. Um, then we have uh, Mobileye in the computer vision, um, autonomous, and and generally speaking, cars and just automotive um, industry. Um, and then on a completely different um, area, we have, you've mentioned Fiverr, yeah. right? uh, which is a marketplace for the, it's called the gigs economy, uh, um, professional services in, in a variety of fields. Um, and, and I think the most successful um, company in its space, the, the global market leader. Uh, we have companies such as Wix, which are... Um, online um, web website builder yeah website builders but a very successful one so these are examples for um, companies that are b2c mm-hmm. targeting the, actually the end users the consumers which for many years it was always uh, we were always told that Israelis are good at b2b b2b yeah for companies for enterprises and not for the because of what we talked about right we're, we're distant from the actual um behavior of the consumer the end consumer um and then and the list goes on i think um in, in in the medical space we have some great examples um throughout the history of the tech israeli ecosystem and one of the most recent ones um is actually also mentioned in the book and that's healthy.io 
which is um, a, a company that uses the, the smartphone uh, for a specific list of tests. You're, in their case, it's urine tests. Okay. Um, and, and optimizing and shortening, you know, the, 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 this entire supply, uh, supply chain of, of urine tests um, and bringing it uh, in an optimal way. Um, and other examples, cyber in cybersecurity, of course, there are yeah, there very strong companies. I mean, what's interesting is that at the beginning of the Israeli tech ecosystem, it was always about industries where Israel did have some sort of clear expertise or local need. Okay. Cyber being one of them, or telecommunication because of the military, or agriculture and water, yeah, um, because of the the needs in Israel, and then the ability of the entrepreneurs to actually think of, of a larger market than the Israeli market. But that that's that's history. That's I, distant. I think the the what do you call them in agriculture? Uh, uh, the thing that drips the water along the irrigation system. Drip irrigation system. I think yes. that's an Israeli uh, invention. Yes, it is an Israeli invention. Yeah. And it is, is still the global market leader in that space. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, and in agriculture in general, I mean, um, there, there are a lot of uh, um, technologies and food, food tech technologies that came out of Israel even before the word food tech yeah. uh, invented. Yeah, uh, because of uh, growing in the desert, mm -hmm. that was a need, and then from that need here in Israel, it actually created a, um, an expertise in how do you grow good vegetables and fruits in a uh, sunny, deserted environment. Yeah. Or another extreme example that actually not a lot of people know how Israel is leading the world in that. A very interesting one is the one of um, milk uh, um, cows, um, milking cows facilities. Okay. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one before. That was actually, so in the kibbutzim in Israel. Okay. Okay. All of the milk and the dairy used to come domestically yeah. from you know, those kibbutzim in Israel, where they had, how do you call that in English? How do you say refit? Um, well, I, I don't even know if they have that anymore. I think nowadays you just have a, a large kefo, right? Like, a, that's what it's called, I believe, where they just milk or eventually slaughter cows. Well, but, yeah, I don't think they kind of live on small ones in Israel in all the kibbutzim. Yeah. And part of the... Um, like a pasture type? Part of the, uh, um, the, the know-how and the expertise that these kibbutzim created was the automation of these processes. I see. And it, and it has actually turned into an expert field, the, the knowledge of the automation, mm -hmm. okay? Um, to other places in the world. So these are just examples of industries where Israel did have a specific need or environment that, that cultivated them. But today, when you look at the, the diversity of industries, 
It ranges from cybersecurity, telecommunication, IT, okay, um, data science, food tech, energy, water, to financial technologies, where Israel definitely doesn't have a large market or needs insurance technologies. So Lemonade being one of the global leaders in what they do, it's, it's an Israeli company. Yeah. Um, um, fashion technologies, retail technologies, computer vision, um, autonomous vehicles, drones. I mean, just name anything. it. Yeah. Well, another one is uh, desalination. Uh, I think we're a world leader in desalination. I've been seeing these articles coming out of California where obviously massive droughts and it doesn't look like it'll get better anytime soon. On, on, on the contrary, it looks like droughts are going to be the new norm. And there have been articles saying like, why can't we copy what Israel is doing? Because we're, yeah, we're all along the shore. We can use these desalination plants to, you know, bring in water. So that's another one. That's another example from what started here as, you know, a, a domestic need. Yeah. And built in while considering the ability to actually impact and, and, and create a, a global market to these technologies. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a massive one because water is starting to be scarce in a lot of places. And um, unless, I don't know, so unless they start somehow creating water out of thin air, literally. I well, there is nobody doing that in Israel. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Doing that and being very successful in, in many remote locations called water gen. Yeah. So water tech industries is another industry that is very well developed here. An additional one is actually, like I said, the one about food technology. Um, so um, everything that's related now to, you know, uh, um, vertical growing. Uh, less for also, but but I meant uh, um, meat and and okay. poultry and um, artificial meat or however lab, you want lab to... lab grown meat. Yeah, there's a company, uh, Super Super. Yes, yeah, there's so many different technologies and ways of doing that. But that's another um, industry that is really um, disrupt. Israeli companies are disrupting um, um, the world with the technologies they bring. And the solutions they bring, um, cultivated meat. I mean, there are different options, uh, but it's one that is really now being emerging in the, in the Israeli tech space. So now that we've covered, I mean, I didn't even know a lot of this stuff, to be honest. Like, this is just, it's mind-blowing. And I'm sure we didn't even cover, like, uh, I'm sure there's so many other, other companies and other industries Give people maybe an idea because we said there's a few different elements, right? And it's not only the army, but the army is a, is a, is, a, is is one component. Like, what are the other things that obviously are written about in the book that just I don't know make it make this ecosystem such a flourishing ecosystem for for entrepreneurs? So I, I think um, the Israeli model is a very is a unique one in the sense that. It has organized itself around certain elements. Um, I'll say that one, the, the mindset, in my opinion, is critical. So the one of asking questions and, and, and not knowing and being motivated to solve and challenging reality, 
okay, um, and wanting to be, to take part in changing reality, a reality. So all of these elements, so, so and these involve critical thinking and complex problem thinking and innovation and creativity, okay? These are all um, one very essential part, in my opinion, but one group of elements. The second group, I think, which is um, very interesting is the network effect or the, I would say the, the network's effect. Okay. In the sense that, and it has also, of course, a lot of uh, converging points with the first one, but the fact that we are very personal in what we do and in how we act, yeah. the fact that um, we don't waste too much time, you know, going in circles. Yeah, I love that. The fact that we 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 know we we can um, relatively easily understand even in between the lines when we speak about one person or the other. Uh, it, it's relatively authentic, or the way we call it the book Dougly, right? Yeah. It's, it's no BS. Yeah. And, and that, so it creates trust. And that trust in networks of individuals um, creates, again, a, a very fertile ground to support each other, to help each other, to uh, um, provide advice, to connect with others. Now, to be fair, uh, the fact that we are small in scale also helps. For sure. Right? So yeah. it's easy to, because of the size and the, the climate in terms of uh, interpersonal yeah. uh, uh, climate, it's easy to get to actually to reach any person you want here in Israel. That's true. That's so true. that's the second element. Um, the third element, I think, is is that of values and and things that are important to us, whether we acknowledge it and we're aware of it or not. Yeah. Um, I just saw two days ago uh, an incredibly moving show on TV about people who are doing. You know, it's it's the holiday season in Israel, so there are a lot of shows about summarizing the year. Yeah. And it was about people who are doing as a hobby, not as their profession. Good things for others. And you have that all over the world. Okay. You have good people all over the world helping others. Mm -hmm. But listening to the stories that they brought, it was just incredible to see how young people in Israel have an interest in being involved in their communities, in their neighborhoods, country level, each person on a different level. Yeah. They want to be involved and growing up in Israel, they think it's possible, like you said before, to just solve any problem. So they're highly motivated. And it's, I think that core value of eventually wanting to do good this mm-hmm. here. Although we personally are sometimes blind to it, we don't see it in ourselves. But when you look from the outside, it's it's present. Yeah. So Israeli solidarity, you know, is 
at its best in times of crisis. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Not so much when everything's going well, but when, yeah. Going well because we like to criticize and we're very cynical about ourselves, but it's present. Mm -hmm. And so, and I always say, you know, the best, the best place to fall in the middle of the street at the middle of the night when you're by yourself is in Israel Mm -hmm. because for sure someone will help you. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Do you think some of the, so one of the things you mentioned um, was, I believe in, in the book was independence. And I remember when I was four, you know, I used to walk from kindergarten back home by myself and my mom would wait right outside the, the, there was a one street. So she would wait. She would like, tell me, okay, you can cross it now. And I was four. Right. And here that doesn't happen, but I don't know if that happens anymore in Israel as well. I don't know if a four-year-old can kind of just walk by himself anymore. And I'm just wondering if there's obviously still independence, but I wonder if there's less independence because there is more worry nowadays, right? Like uh, my kids, security. So are are we coming? Are we becoming a little bit more helicopter parents? And is that you think an overall good or bad or just the reality of the times? So there's we're definitely becoming a little more helicopter yeah. intensive. Okay, I, I I can't ignore this. But still, there's a lot more independence in Israel um, than in other places in the world, in other developed countries. Um, and, it's, and it's not just independence. It's independence which relies on the, on the trust that we have in our kids' abilities to cope. Mm-hmm. So it, there's an underlying message there saying, you can take care of yourself. Less than before, definitely more than in other places. Um, not, I don't, I don't associate it to more reasons. I just associate it to the fact that we're much more connected today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, all these devices and yeah. all of the things that help us be connected to one another all the time. People have, you know, cameras in their home filming what's happening at every single moment of their homes. Yeah. Right? Um, it's very difficult not to be a helicopter and parent when you have cameras in your home. So, yeah. But, but, I mean, I leave, I leave a camera for my dogs when I leave. You know, I just watch what they do. Yeah. So you see, I mean, imagine when you'll have kids, right? So, but by the way, this is very rare in Israel, still rare in Israel. Um, but the fact is that this is, this is the time in which we live. This is the world in which we live. I have to say that I think that uh, you asked if I think it was a good thing or a bad thing. Overall, I think that it's not a positive behavior of parenting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I that by doing that, we actually the message we we, we give them is that we don't trust you. We we keep supervising what you're doing. Um, and, and I think it's a shame. I think kids are anywhere in the world by default capable of doing so much more than what adults think they can. Yeah. And it's just a matter of control. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just a matter of, like we said before, 
that sense of control provides a perceived sense of comfort, of, of less stress. Yeah. Overall, I don't think it's, it's a good thing. Um, no. You, you, um, in the beginning of the book, you had a chat, you, you, you talked a little bit like Baumel, which for people who may not know, it's, uh, it's essentially bonfire. It's, it's, it's a holiday around bonfires. Won't get into the whole history, but it's about a few days, uh, and kids go and they collect wood through certain dubious means. And eventually they find the wood and they have a little bonfire. It's very fun. And it's a, it's a collective work that maybe if you're in fourth or fifth grade, you know, all the class or a part of the class does it. And as you said in the thing, and it completely transported me back. I, I haven't thought about this in years when I was reading it. It was so, it was so fun. Um, when I was 10, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. You know, I was 10 or 11 and we did this bonfire and we collected a whole lot of wood and we went to this area where it was just like, you know, there was dirt, there was just sand, there was nothing there. And we made our bonfire and there was no parents there. You know, it was just kids, right. With a massive fire, 10 year olds. Mm-hmm. And because we, 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 uh, uh, yeah, we stole it. <laughs> we stole it from a construction area. It was, it had um, nails and I walked too close to the fire. I stepped on one of those uh, things with the nail and nail was hot. It went through my leg, like, you know, like butter. Ah, I was, you know, screaming. My friend, he took me back to to his house. Luckily he lives close by. And I called my dad. It was like midnight. I'm like, dad, you know, what happened? I need to go to the hospital. He came, picked me up, went to the hospital. They put my foot in some water. It was fine. It was completely fine, right? Like I have a story to tell. I survived. Now, to your point that you said, I don't know if I, if I, and I, I don't have kids, right? 10 years from now, if I have a kid and he's 10, I don't know that I would let him do what my parents allowed me just because of, of my own issues, nothing to do with the kid. Right. And, and, and the time. So yeah, we are becoming, you know, and I know what's right. I know I should allow him, but I don't know if I'd be able to. You know, what's interesting is that, um, all the anecdotes, well, that I give, that I provide in the book and in the keynote that I have, um, which is actually visual, which is images from day-to-day life in modern Israel of today. Okay, so it's 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 the complementary, if you want, okay, part of the book because it's the visuals that actually show the same thing, but in 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 photos and not in words. They're all taken from today's Israel. Yeah. The funny thing is, including the story in the book about Black Boma and the junkyard, um, I, I provide a reference to how it started. But I, I show examples that exist today around me here. And the very interesting thing that I, when I, when I speak to Israelis, when I you know it's to Israelis, they always tell me, oh, but all these photos that you're showing us are, are they're, they don't, they're not relevant anymore. This is not Israel of today. And then I tell them, guys, th- these are photos that I've taken in the past three, four years. Mm-hmm. We all have this, you know, view of of our childhood of our past um we look at it in different eyes yes things have changed um 
Today, by the way, kids in Israel still celebrate Lag Baomer. They still go to construction sites and steal those branches of woods. They still take a supermarket cart and, you know, for a week or so use it for their own needs. Walking daylight in the streets of Tel Aviv, yeah. not taking a distance area. It's not, they're not hiding themselves. Mm-hmm. They still, still do that. The only difference that exists is that from environmental issues. Mm-hmm. We're trying to consolidate bonfires into you know, a, a smaller amount of bonfires because it creates uh, environmental problems. Yeah. Um, but but it's, these, still, these things still exist in Israel. Um, has the, you know, the average changed a little bit? Probably yes. Yeah. But still, I think kids are given a lot of independence here, a lot of freedom, a lot of trust and confidence in their capabilities. Most Israeli kids, or many Israeli kids, but I do think that most Israeli kids come home from school at one or two o'clock to an empty house where their parents are not there because they work outside, both parents, usually nowadays. Yeah. And, and they take care of themselves. Yeah, it's very true. Well, before we uh, before we finish up, I want to ask you a question and or maybe advice for young Israeli entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when I left Israel like almost ten years ago, there was this notion of of you can only succeed abroad, like you can only succeed in in the U.S. Right? And now I, you know, do you think? I guess my question is, do you still think that's true? Or can young aspiring Israelis, because we export a lot of our talents overseas and, you know, a lot of people tend up stay over there, meaning here in the U.S. And, and maybe don't come back or they do come back eventually. But can now with how the environment is, the, the, how the tech ecosystem is thriving in, in, in Israel, do people actually need to leave? Uh, young aspiring Israeli entrepreneurs, do they need to, live, to leave for the U.S. or for Europe? Or can they be just as successful and, and create great companies in Israel? So, you know, I'll, I'll say the facts. Yeah. Uh, that's the best evidence. In 2013, there was one unicorn company in Israel. Unicorn company being a, a, a billion-dollar private company. 2013, there was one. And, and the notion was that Israeli entrepreneurs, they're good at, they're solution-oriented, they're good at starting, they're good at bringing their companies up to a certain scale, but then we lack the capabilities of growing big companies, okay? Um, so 2013, one unicorn. 2019, there were 18 unicorns in Israel. Twenty one over sixty five. Really, and that's and that's yes, and that's my answer. So you can definitely succeed by staying here. I think one of the best changes that we've seen in the past decade was um, those founders and CEOs who insisted on growing their companies in Israel. So the Fivers, the Wixes, okay, of the world. Of, of Israel, in Lemonade, insisting yeah. keeping the headquarter in Israel, the core management team, the core executive team in Israel, and yes, of course, opening uh, marketing or sales offices in the U.S., 
But not anymore that idea that for a company to succeed, the CEO or the founder needs to relocate to the US yeah. or other, another place. And, and, and the facts are, again, the best evidence for that. And I think we'll, we'll see only more and more of that um, in Israel. So you definitely don't have to leave Israel in order to succeed. Actually, you have much better chances if you're a tech entrepreneur doing it from here, succeeding from here than, you know, moving to the U.S. Um, and, and, and losing all the competitive advantages that you do have as an Israel. Uh, you convinced me. I'm coming back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a large portion of those who left Israel, uh, that profile of people eventually do come back. Yeah. And, and, and it's... And, I'm actually in favor of, you know, keeping that balance. I think it's okay for people to leave. It's okay for some to stay. It's okay for others to come back. Uh, that is part of the Israeli network. Um, and, and each and every group brings its own advantages into this entire ecosystem of, of success of Israelis. Yeah, for sure. Well, Inbal, thank you very much. This was a blast. Same here. It was great speaking. Yeah, it was great knowing you. Great talking to you. Uh, it was very informative. A lot of stuff I had no idea about. Where um, where can people find you? Where's the best places to follow? Where can they buy the book? Uh, give uh, give the good people all the information. Perfect. So social media, it's easy. Um, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Inbal, I-N-B-A-L dot Arieli. A-R-I-E-L-I. Um, so that's on a personal level. The book, Chutzpah, Why Israel is a Hub of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, um, can be found on Amazon. It was published by Harper Business. It's available on Amazon and Audible. Um, and of course, the hardcover. Um, and all the other versions in different languages in, in the respective countries. Um, and uh, my website, um, chutzpahcenter.com where you can find, like I said, the Chutzpah Dictionary, the approach. Um, I'm launching very soon a Chutzpah one-on-one course, an online course. Oh, nice. Um, also be available there uh, for young professionals. Um, my speaking events, my keynotes, um, it's all in Chutzpah Center. And as always, I'll be sure to link everything in the show notes, make it easy for everyone to find it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Inbal Arieli. Thank you so much, Inbal. This was a, a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Have a good year. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. We'll be in touch. Perfect.